like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. <gasps> Y'all, How it you doing? it's been too long. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. It's only been a second. We've been it's here the whole time. It's only been a moment in We've time. been here the whole time. I don't know what y'all are talking about. <laughs> a blip. A blink of an eye. Yeah. We were gone. Um, but we're back. That's all that matters right now is that we're back. We had a great Fringe Festival this we year. Did. Oh, man. Diana. So good. Uh, phenomenal work. I just got to say it. I mean, I s- try to say it every day. Uh, and a lot of other people say it who don't spend every minute of their lives with you. <laughs> but an incredible year. And just you and your team. Um, really amazing stuff. I had a really good time. As an attendant and as a critic. Yes, that's true. You had to critique several shows. Oh, and I I let him have it. (laughs) (laughs) I am excited to read. No, it was a really good year for shows, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I I didn't didn't hate anything. I don't even think I disliked anything. I think I mostly, at the worst, I like had some notes about a couple of them, but I saw some that were just amazing. It was kind of nice this year. There was no no show that anyone hated or was talking shit about. There was no no artist that was a jerk. Like There was no... It was almost like, well, where's all my fun drama? (laughs) No one to bitch about, you know what I mean? (laughs) Even though I was really happy about that, it was was also kind of funny to be like, well, no, I don't have an enemy. (laughs) Where's my fringe enemy? Uh, But no, it was a really good year. I was really proud of it. Good. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And you might hear a squeaking in the background right now because we're dog sitting. (laughs) (laughs) Little Gunny, he's a joy, mostly. That was the worst lie. You were the worst lie. No, he's so snuggly he and sweet. Is. He's a little angel. And he has, the thing is, Gunny has two settings. Mm-hmm. I'm lying in your lap 
Ugh. and I just want love. And, it's and, the best. and a lot of the times he's like that. And his other setting on a scale of one to 100 is 876. Yeah, a crazed lunatic. But he's just a puppy. He's so a puppy, yeah, that's, yeah. That's really all it is. Yeah. And there's so much to catch you up on, too. I don't Ugh. want to take too much time. Uh, the succession finale. Jesus. Uh, we're watching Silo now. Oh, you guys. Uh, we, saw it, we saw Across the Spider-Verse. Y'all! Oh, my God. Best movie ever made. It Sorry, was really good. Um, Guardians 3 was really good. Guardians 3 was really good. But, you know, we got to set all that aside because we've got a big story to get to here. Mm-hmm. Huge story. Uh, I mean, this guy, his name... His reputation precedes him. We know that. <laughs> because in our last episode, we learned about Al and May Capone. Of course, Al Capone, one of the most notorious gangsters of all time. Mm-hmm. He was from Brooklyn, but he ended up the head of the Chicago Outfit, which is an Italian-American organized crime gang. His wife, May, was the daughter of Irish immigrants. And so at the time, Italian men marrying Irish girls was like a big no-no for both cultures. Mm-hmm. But these two were very, they were just total Romeo and Juliet, like totally in love. And they got married. They had a son named Albert who was called Sonny. Eventually, these two ended up being stinking rich mobsters, right? Right. Well, Al was a mobster and May, you know, knew about it. She hosted all of his cronies. Mm -hmm. Now, when last we left, Al had tried to semi-retire by moving to Miami and the, they and the family ingratiated themselves with the locals there, just dropping cash, supporting local business, mm-hmm. like seemed pretty nice. But of course, he just ended up doing a bunch of crime again. You know, every time I get out, they pull me <laughs> back in. And this included calling a hit on his former boss and crime partner, Frank Yale. Damn. Now, Al's undiagnosed syphilis was starting to affect his brain, and it was making him even more ruthless and violent than he already was. And things were about to get rough for the Capone family, so let's dive in and see what horrors await for public family number one. Let's do it! (laughs) Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. So Al Capone, his wife May, and their son Sonny had moved to Miami in 1928 after getting chased out of basically every other city he tried to visit. You know, Al Capone would go visit Los Angeles and they were like, you get out of here. Or they were like, "Uh, you like get out of here, Al Capone. (laughs) We don't want you here. Or he would go to uh, Minnesota Mm -hmm. and they'd be like, I don't think so there, Al Capone. Mm -hmm. You can keep pack your bags and keep moving. Take your hot dish somewhere else. Uh (laughs) (laughs) He'd go to Birmingham, Alabama. (laughs) We don't take kindly to your store around here, (laughs) Al Capone. Exactly. (laughs) But Miami. (laughs) Who are your people? (laughs) Who are your people? But he shows up in Miami and he was determined to stay there. He called it, quote, the Garden of America and the sunny Italy of the New World. (laughs) And he announced that, quote, I'm going to build or buy a home here and I hope my friends will join me. 
I did really have a blast in Miami when I went. Yeah. So I, I don't know. blame him. Well, yeah, you also <laughs> went down to escape your criminal past. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And it was a great escape. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Art Basel, all that. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, it turns out that at the time, Miami was in a, actually a really bad real estate bust because they'd had a hurricane the year before that kind of screwed everything up. Mm-hmm. So even if they were initially a little skeptical of criminal mastermind Al Capone showing up in their town, as soon as he suggested that he was looking to buy property there, <laughs> they were like, Oh, bienvenidos a Miami! <laughs> Party in the city with a huge dog. <laughs> right, <laughs> totally busted out the dancers. <laughs> a headline in the Chicago Tribune read, quote, Capone hunted in Miami, but by realty men. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so like we said in the last episode, Alan May totally ingratiated themselves into Miami culture. They were throwing money around. They leased a penthouse at the Ponce de Leon Hotel and a waterfront mansion. They were supporting local businesses. They were like dropping thousand dollar bills on furniture makers and tailors and generally just making Miami real happy to have them. Sure. Police chiefs in other cities had basically all said, you know, we don't want to hear Capone. But Miami's chief, H. Leslie Quigg, said, quote, if he's here for a good time and behaves himself, he can stay as long as he likes. Wow. And the mayor of Miami, J. Newton Lummis, was a realtor. Oh, okay. <laughs> so even though he publicly denounced Capone, he also secretly worked for him. Great job, Lummis. <laughs> I Way mean, to play both sides. Like you're not asking for organized crime if you elect a realtor, a realtor as your mayor. mayor. Oh, no dangerous crossovers there. <laughs> So Lummis actually helped Capone buy this huge property, but it was all very secretive. They had this buried paper trail going mm-hmm. on where the former mayor's son was the intermediary. He laundered money from Chicago to Miami, eventually purchased the property and then put a lease in May Capone's name. Mm-hmm. So the Capones didn't technically own the property. Right, right. They were just they leasing, were just leasing it, it from this guy. From a totally random dude. (laughs) A totally random dude who happened to get a bunch of money coming in from Chicago for some reason. Yeah. (laughs) But this little maneuver was going to be another handy little piece of evidence in the case that the feds were building against Al Capone. Mm -hmm. And so before we settle down with the rest of Alan May's story, let's take a quick fling with history. Order in the court. In the 1920s, during Prohibition, it was almost impossible to prosecute crime bosses because of witness intimidation or lack of hard evidence. And of course, bribery was Mm -hmm. just everywhere. But this woman, Mabel Walker Willebrandt, who had been the first public defender of women in Los Angeles, in 1921 became the U.S. Assistant Attorney General, and she was handling a lot of the Prohibition cases. And she steps in, she's like, hey, um... These mob bosses are living like kings and just dropping money everywhere they go, but they never file tax returns. Like when they do their Mm. taxes, they say they don't have any money or they didn't make any money. Right. So shouldn't we be able to prosecute them for that? Mm. They're like, uh, hey, Mabel. Interesting idea. Pretty good idea. A woman with a good idea. Actually, they probably were like, oh, whatever, anyway. Hey, guys, you know what I've been thinking? (laughs) Uh, These mafia guys are living like kings, and they never put in tax returns. I was just thinking. I had this great idea just a second ago. Brilliant thought, Henry. (laughs) And Mabel's like, okay, as long as the work gets done, I guess I don't need credit. That's correct, Mabel. I'll take coffee, seven sugars, please. Oh, I'll prosecute you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first guy that they ended up getting under this theory was Manley Sullivan in 1921. He was a bootlegger from South Carolina, 
And they brought him in. They arrested him. They said, hey, you must not be paying taxes because you clearly have all this money that you're not declaring. Mm -hmm. Well, his lawyer said that for him to file a tax return on money that he had earned illegally would violate his Fifth Amendment protections against self-incrimination. Like, basically, if he filed a return that said, I got I got all this money through bootlegging. Mm -hmm. Here's here's the money I made. Then he's basically saying, hey, I committed a crime. And that's right. forcing someone to admit a crime against their will. Fifth Amendment, you can't do that. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. To me, I guess. But it did not fly in federal court. Nope. <laughs> he was totally convicted. But a court of appeals reversed the decision and they sent it to the Supreme Court. So SCOTUS took the case. And Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes found, quote, no reason why the fact that a business is unlawful should exempt it from paying taxes that, if lawful, it would have to pay. And the court agreed unanimously. Uh -huh. They noted that the Revenue Act of 1921 said that gross income includes, quote, gains or profits and income derived from any source whatever. Right. And Holmes said that the Fifth Amendment thing did not apply because everybody has to declare their income. So earning it illegally should not get you special treatment over everyone else. Right. It also makes sense, I guess, because yeah. it would just be like, oh, if you get it illegally, you don't have to pay taxes. Yeah. Loophole, everyone. Like, right. <laughs> that would be a really yeah. bad precedent to set. I not only can you break the law to make all your money, you don't even have to tell them <laughs> you did it. You can also avoid that tax thing everybody hates. It does kind of encourage people to, to look in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. So the feds were already working on a case against Capone under this decision, and they were looking at how much money he was spending in order to determine how much he was earning. Yeah. So they're seeing like, oh, OK, May Capone is leasing this multimillion dollar mansion uh -huh, in with Miami. What? With what? Yeah. With what? You move down to Chicago with on paper, nothing. Mm -hmm. Side note, my favorite part of that ruling from the Supreme Court is mm -hmm. where Justice Holmes said that, sure, it might be suggested that if you declare your illegal business income, that you could also deduct <laughs> illegal business expenses like bribery. <laughs> like, hey, look, if I if I write down that I made a million dollars in bootlegging, hey. I'm going to deduct the $300,000 I spent in bribes. You know? <laughs> now, that's very interesting because it kind of incriminates the people that you're bribing, right? Oh, sure. Because like, you could be like, well, I spent $300,000 uh -huh. bribing the Chicago PD. Yeah, which, of course, they wouldn't want you to do. Obviously not. Well, Justice Holmes said that I'm not saying this is a logical conclusion that you could deduct your illegal expenses, quote, but it will be time enough to consider the question when a taxpayer has the temerity to raise it. <laughs> so he's temerity. like, he's like, look. <laughs> If somebody wants to come in here and say, hey, I made illegal bribes and I should be able to deduct those. We'll talk about it then. <laughs> okay, we'll cross that you know, bridge when I, someone sets it on fire. I kind of feel like it's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, he's, you know, maybe there's someone out there right now trying to figure out their case. <laughs> it could be. I mean, it still says in the IRS tax code today that, quote, income from illegal activities, which would include things like dealing drugs or accepting bribes must be included in the declaration of one's income. And Steve Hargreaves of CNN Business wrote in 2013, quote, not surprisingly, few criminals declare their loot. Mm -hmm. But he said that some do. Which I was really surprised by. I'm like, who would? Because right? that is self-incrimination. And he's, he, he was writing that usually it's when people feel like they're about to get caught for their crimes and they don't want a tax evasion charge slapped on top of whatever charges they're already facing. So they'll be oh. like, let me declare this real quick. <laughs> I see. So they at least I only go to jail for the crime and not. I mean, do they file back taxes paperwork? like every yeah, year right? they made illegal <laughs> money or whatever? 
Also, interestingly, when it came out that this house had a deed in May Capone's name, insurance companies pulled their policies. Oh, yeah. They said it did not matter which Capone owned this home. It was just ensuring it was way too risky. Yeah, I don't care if it's May Capone. You still get to end up with a bunch of bullet holes in your windows. True that. Stuff, you like, know. Mm-hmm, I'm paying for that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and also, not to mention also, you probably don't want to insure a house that has known illegal activities going on in it. Very right? true. Anyway, in 1927, just before Al moved to Miami, President Coolidge had appointed a new U.S. attorney in Chicago named George Emerson Q. Johnson, who was like a tall, wiry, rumpled old man, who Lawrence Burgreen says, quote, might have been mistaken for a poet or perhaps a drama critic. That is, until he opened his mouth, (laughs) because this guy was a real nerd for the justice system. Mm -hmm. U.S. attorneys made about $10,000 a year in that era, which is close to $175,000 a year today. But that was nothing compared to what a corrupt official could bring in in bribes, of course. for real, for real. So it took a real nerd for justice to resist corruption. Mm -hmm. Like a real Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Yeah, totally, right? (laughs) Like, you know, no amount of money can buy me off. I'm here for Lady Liberty. (laughs) Lady Liberty. Yeah. Oh, also, side note, the Q stood for nothing. Oh. (laughs) It was just to stand out from other George Johnsons out there. Wow. So this like Peter Q. Parker. Seven George Emerson Johnsons in the phone book. <laughs> Throw a Q in there. Throw a Q in there. Stand up. But anyway, all that to say, a case was being built against Capone without his knowledge for years. Yeah. All the background, they're just like watching his. I mean, like, surely Capone knows the FBI's watching him, right? All the mobsters right. did. That's why they were so careful and that why they were always dropping bribes. Mm-hmm. But they, uh, they were like, they w- I think that's the thing. They weren't expecting, like, you know, he's been real careful about his murders and his bootlegging and his drugs and all that stuff. He's not paying attention to the accounting. Right. The boring part. Which is why it was a pretty smart angle. Yeah. For Mabel to take. Yeah. And why you've got people like Elliot Ness and it was the Treasury Department that ended up taking him down. Now, obviously, we're really trying to stay focused, y'all know, on on the romance side of Al Capone's life here. and, And we could do other people have done longer and better research series on Al Capone's crimes many, many and his life crimes. as a mobster, right? <laughs> so we're just dropping a little bit of info to sort of set up what uh, he and his family ended up doing. But one of the big ones was on February 14th of 1929, when Al Capone executed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Or, well, Al Capone almost definitely executed this. Nobody was ever officially convicted. And it's an elaborate story, but basically, in Chicago, seven men who were working for Capone's rival, Bugs Moran, were executed by four guys, two of which were dressed as police officers. So there was a whole thing for a while where people were like, oh, the cops did it, you know. Right. But they were not actually. But they were not actually. I mean, we don't know who they were. Mm. But uh, the idea is that, no, no, they were not cops. Um, Again, big, long story. I'm not going to speculate on it right here because there's way more evidence than I have handy. but. At the time, Capone had been chilling in Miami with his family. Like the night that this happened, they were having a little dinner party. Capone had not had contact with anyone in Chicago for days beforehand. Like suspiciously little contact. He was always talking to Chicago. But the four or five days before this happened, just no communications. But uh, but that night, yeah, they were holding a dinner party. Uh, Al was walking Sonny around, introducing him to all his new Miami friends. Uh, May was refilling drinks. She's socializing. Real just casual, fancy dinner party stuff. Now, up to this point in Chicago, 
public opinion of Al Capone was actually really not that bad. He was mostly known as a bootlegger, and people kind of respected alcohol smugglers because almost everyone wanted to drink. Um, that's what's so funny you know? to me about Prohibition right. and how hugely monumental of a failure it was yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah, and most people were on the, on the bootlegger's yeah, side to some degree. And as long as they didn't know, you know, what else they were doing, they were like, oh, they're just running gin. Mm -hmm. I'm not worried about Al Capone. He's just bringing me the booze that I sneak in the speakeasy. Yeah. Um, but once the St. Valentine's Day massacre happened and his name was attached to it and actually pictures of the crime scene were leaked. So the public saw this really right. horrible carnage. And then his public image took a turn for the worse. Uh-oh. Within days, Al Capone was called to Chicago to testify. And again, a lot more uh, crime history stuff happening there where he actually managed to get out of it and weasel away from this with no charges. That's right. Because, yeah, he was not convicted for this crime. But we do know they got him eventually. Mm -hmm. And we'll find out how right after this break. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married yeah. at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation <laughs> yeah. that didn't have to deal with Instagram and that. Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. We create magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top 
of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome back, you stool pigeons. (laughs) All right, so Al Capone was a criminal mastermind who just got more cruel and violent as time went on. And we talked about this a little bit before, but modern scholars think this really had a lot to do with his undiagnosed syphilis, Mm -hmm. which can affect the mind and it makes people act very differently, sometimes violently. Oh, yeah. Whole personality changes. That's right. Yeah. But very, very long story short, Al's crimes continued until he was arrested in 1931 and indicted for tax evasion. At the beginning of the episode, we took that quick fling with history to talk about the Revenue Act of 1921, stated that you had to declare your income even for illegal activities. So while Capone managed to dodge every other accusation thrown at him, including this violent massacre that Mm -hmm. he was almost definitely orchestrated, Mm -hmm. this was their angle to get him off the streets, and it worked. Yeah, Chicago Magazine reports that Al and May's lavish lifestyle helped prosecutors put them away, particularly Al's insatiable appetite for food. They were spending upwards of $1,000 a week on groceries, and this was more than most Depression-era families spent in a year. Good God, I can't even... Just, you know, you got, I'm imagining just buffet tables every night, pastries and fruits and and lobster, yeah. Filet mignon, it must be really expensive food. Oh, yeah. $1,000 $1,000 a week in 1931? Oh, my God. Jesus. Forget it. You're buying and, too much. Right. And it's not just him. Of course, he's hosting big parties all the time. Sure. He's whining and dining, the you know, politicians yeah. and stuff, because he was very into Miami politics as well as a mobster. Mm-hmm. All this money spending on food was a big part of the evidence that was used against him to prove that he was making way more money than he claimed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Capone was convicted and he was sentenced to 11 years in prison. And first he was sent to Atlanta. Hmm. Now, he was officially diagnosed with syphilis here during a medical inspection. And he was also suffering from cocaine withdrawal because he had been a huge cocaine user. Mm -hmm. Um, It actually gave him a perforated septum, which would cause him some serious health problems later on. He was only allowed three visitors at prison. And of course, that was his wife, May, his son, Sonny, and Al's own mother, who was allowed to come see him as well. 
While he was in the Atlanta prison, he was actually really weak. He was having a hard time standing up for himself. He was getting bullied a lot because his health had taken such a bad turn. And other groups of prisoners started picking up and defending him kind of randomly. And he started to get some pretty nice accommodations, too. His room got upgraded. He got a nicer bed with a more comfortable mattress. Like, all these kind of suspicious things that made some accusations come out that he was getting special treatment. Now, there was never any evidence brought forth that this was officially happening, but it was enough to get him transferred out of Atlanta to Alcatraz. Ooh. And here, of course, he's on an island. He's on the rock with Sean Connery, uh, and he is no longer allowed visitors. But due to good behavior, he was allowed to play the banjo in the Alcatraz prison band. They were called the Rock Islanders, and they played every Sunday for other inmates. I I would love to go see the Rock Islanders I would play. Totally you know what I mean? See. Like, kind of be a great be concert. That'll be on the time travel agency. Yeah, there we go. Play, but we just go see a concert at, of the Rock yeah, Islanders. Yeah, one Rock Islanders concert. Get you a little little striped outfit to wear. My my guess <laughs> is in. they didn't take. Uh, you know, it wasn't a public concert. Doubt. Probably couldn't buy tickets. Very much. My second guess is they were probably okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> how good could they be? I don't know. I mean, I guess they don't have. You know, all they can do is practice. So maybe they're great. And they don't have day jobs to worry about. They're only allowed to play it when they're playing a concert <laughs> and they're terrible. <laughs> Actually, so in one of the letters Al wrote home to his son, he talked about how he worked some days. He was he was he would stitch up boots. That was his job. Mm. And he was supposed to be really good at it. Um and he had days off and he said from up until three PM I'm they let me play the banjo and from three PM on to the evening I'm just writing songs. Wow. Yeah. So uh, he might have plenty of time with his music. Artist retreat. Yeah. And Al loved music. He was actually really good with music. He'd grown up in this Italian family. They loved Mm. music. It was a big part of his life. And one day he passed a piece of paper with the lyrics of a song to a priest friend of his. You know, take these out. Uh, I want someone to have them. So Mm -hmm. let's go down to Poetry Corner for a selection from Capone's song, Madonna Mia. In a quaint Italian garden, while the stars were all aglow, once I heard a lover singing to the one that he loved so. In that quaint Italian garden, neath the starry sky above, every night he'd serenade her with his tender song of love. Once again I see that garden, many years have hurried by. I can see that sweet Madonna, there's a teardrop in her eye. For her soldier has departed, left his loved one with a sigh. She said, I will wait forever, as he sang this last goodbye. Kind of beautiful. That's lovely. Um, It was reported for a while that Al Capone wrote this song as a tribute to May. Um, And it might have been a tribute to her, but the Boston Globe reported in 2018 that he actually did copy the lyrics out of a songbook. Like this was a song that had been written probably a few years earlier. Mm. And we don't know that Al ever claimed it as his own song. Like it's not like he signed it was like, hey, take this, take this song out there and tell everybody what a musical genius I am. (laughs) It's my opus. Yeah. But when this slip of paper made it to an auction in the early 2000s, that was definitely the story. They were like, Al Capone's song he wrote for his wife. <laughs> Doy. <Yeah. laughs> you know they got thousands and thousands more dollars <laughs> than just like, Al Capone wrote this, copied this out of a book. Actually, so in 1999, according to Boston Globe, this song went on sale for 
$45,000. They, they, they expected that that's what it would fetch, but wow. it did not sell. Hmm. Um, it was returned to the consigner, apparently. And then later it was sold to a private collector. That was in 2009. Now, Wikipedia suggests that this song was put up for sale for $65,000, but I don't know if that's what they paid for it or not. Mm-hmm. But Rich Larson with AlCaponeFanClub.com uh, had the sheet music, and more than 70 years later, he described it as a tearjerker, and he formed a group of musicians and a vocalist to record the song, and then he released it on CD in 2009. So you can hear it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, the Madonna Mia song. Um, but uh, it's had quite a journey. Fact of the matter is, he did not write the lyrics himself, but he probably did arrange this musical version of it because wow. he was he was able to compose. It's like a Robert Burns. Yeah, kind of like Burns that. Robert Burns in jail. Yeah, totally. <laughs> now, Mary Capone kept out of the public. She only resurfaced periodically to defend Al's character from rumors. Right. And we should say not in any lengthy interviews or anything like no, that. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, but once it was like even reported that she had filed to divorce him and she shot that down real hard. Mm-hmm. Like, hell no, I did not. The press like hounded her all the time, especially as Al's health began to deteriorate. But she always gave short, positive answers. She never let on that he was actually getting sicker all the time from syphilis. And after Al was committed to a prison hospital and rumors were leaked to the press, May wrote to the warden requesting that she be able to visit him, which the warden denied. And eventually, May and the rest of Al's family were pleading for his release because his condition had gotten so bad. Yeah. They were like, please let us just care for him at home or something. It was really bad. And the, of course, prison health care was awful. Um, it was reported that they were doing some experiments with syphilis <gasps> on him. Uh, like they, they had these experimental treatments that were really nasty, mm-hmm. um, very low chance of success. Uh, so it, it, he was just getting really rough treatment. She would She would call like, there'd be a rumor in the press that like Al Capone's in the medical hospital and May would have to call them up, uh, send a telegram rather and say, uh, what's going on? Can I come see him? And they're like, nah, nah, he's fine. Don't worry about it. Dang. So it was really rough and he was only getting worse. He suffered at one point what a prison health report called, quote, a sudden disturbance of consciousness described as a fainting attack or possibly a hysterical episode. That was in 1938. And this was followed by an epileptic fit. Over the next few days after that, he got very quiet and distant. Like, clearly his mind was changing. Mm. And he recovered to the point that he felt well, and he actually had a really positive mood. But he had a harder time concentrating. He had a harder time moving around on his own. And they also reported that he, quote, hears God and the angels verbally reply to prayers. But Al Capone himself even admitted to the doctors that these are probably hallucinations. He just liked hearing them. Which I think I is mean, so interesting. You're like, I know I'm hallucinating, but it's nice. It's not like they're not freaking me out. I mean, that was one of the things that was so, like, arresting, I guess, about Beautiful Mind, that movie, oh, Beautiful yeah, Mind, yeah, yeah, yeah. was how lonely he was yeah. without his, I mean, his... I mean, his hallucinations. Spoiler his alert. Friends. Sorry, it's a very old movie, so get it together. <laughs> it came like 20 years ago. But, you know, it was just like after we, you know, they put him on meds to help him and he was helped by them, but yeah. he was hella lonely and he was like wanting yeah. his friends back. Right. Which is just a, uh, I never would have thought about it that way because yeah. a lot of ways they portray schizophrenia, especially is that it's a torment. You know what I mean? Right. Like they're right. like, oh, I'm hearing these voices and they're freaking me out and they're saying mean things and whatever. But, it had never been presented to me until that movie that yeah. they might be a comfort. 
and a friend and like someone you would miss. Right. And like kind of the opposite. Sometimes I think about how, like how wonderful it would be if I found out that some of my friends were actually just hallucinations and that I could pop some pills <laughs> and they would just go away. <laughs> Damn. Oh, my God. Ice cold. <laughs> like, yeah, I just take these once a day and you're, you're gone? gone? Damn. <laughs> you're All our friends, friends are going to start texting like, hey. Who is it? Who are you talking about? <laughs> which, which one of you is it? Who are you talking about? Hey, listen, if you listen to the show, it's not you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How about that? I'll tell you this. If you ask me, I'll give you the honest answer. Oh. Yeah. Will you really? Yeah. Okay. I'll tell you if it was you. All right. Yeah. All right. Is it me? No. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Capone's family was finally allowed to visit him again at Alcatraz. But the first time he got to see Sonny was in five years. So he had seen him when he was 14 and then didn't see him again until he was 19 years old. So this, you know, his son walks in and he's like six foot two. Mm. He's like, you know, it's 1938 is a grown man right. for 19 years old. Back then, 19 was like you had two houses and you were all <laughs> it's almost time to retire from your job down at the salt factory or whatever. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, Al, everything else notwithstanding great dad apparently yeah. like loved his kid a lot and he and Sonny had kept a close relationship through letters during his time at Alcatraz so even when he wasn't present present mm -hmm. he still tried to keep a relationship yeah. going and Al was always intent on not involving Sonny in the mob right uh, once when he was working in Chicago Al reportedly told a friend quote I don't want to die shot in the street I've got a boy I love that kid yeah and then when Sonny was applying to schools, he listed his father's occupation as retired and just kind of hoped the name wouldn't come up. Right. <laughs> Capone unrelated to that other Capone. Right. Yeah. I wonder if that's like how, uh, you know, I don't know their names. Brittany Schwarzenegger is trying to go to school and she's like <laughs> right. an unrelated Schwarzenegger. <laughs> just another crazy Schwarzenegger. Yeah. <laughs> you know, very common name from these parts. <laughs> and while in Alcatraz, one of Al's letters to Sonny read, quote, Well, heart of mine, sure hope things come our way for next year. Then I'll be there in your arms. And maybe that will sure be a happy feeling for May and you. Well, Sonny, keep up your chin and don't worry about your dear dad. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Oh, the, he didn't want to involve his son in crime. Mm -hmm. And it's almost that sort of like, I'm doing this so you don't have to. Right. And I see him like, and there's a really dark moment in Al Capone's life. It's in the movie The Untouchables, but it's like way scaled down from what it was mm -hmm. where Al Capone took a baseball bat to a couple of guys. Mm -hmm. It was really brutal. And um, I'm you know, picturing him in this room like, I'm doing this for my son. Whack, <laughs> I love that whack. kid. <laughs> you know, so he doesn't have to. I My hands look like this so his can look like that, you know? like. <laughs> oh my God. Oh. Uh, not, I mean, not the I, sentiment you want. You know what I mean? No. Like, it's not as sweet as you think it is, Al. <laughs> I know. I mean, you can justify anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, after a few years in prison, Al's health had gotten so bad that in 1939, he was released from Alcatraz to a California correctional institute where he would get more health-focused care. Mm. May appealed to the court at this point, and in November of 1939, Al Capone, one of the most notorious criminals in U.S. history, was paroled and released after only seven years, six months, and 15 days behind bars. Mm. And it's, it's one of those weird feelings in some of the stories we do where I'm like, aw, 
He got right? to go back to his wife because he was so sick. And that's really sweet. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, I just said this guy severely Kay. destroyed three people's bodies with a baseball bat. Right. And like a lot of people and a were lot murdered, of other murdered on his on his orders. Yeah. A lot of horrible things. He should have probably spent the rest of his life by bars. Or at least the full 11 years. Yeah. But yeah. also, like, is that not sort of an indictment of the prison system right exactly. there? Is that you're like, you're not taking good enough care of the people in yeah. your custody that they're getting out? I mean, he's not really getting away with anything. No. He's clearly not comfortable. No. Like, he's not going back to, like, hang out with all his friends and no. have a great time. No. But still, I mean, it does say something about and how that, shittily we are treating our prisoners absolutely. that we can't even keep them in jail. <laughs> and there is something to be said about, like, you know, I'm going to let you go home to die in your own bed. You right, know, like, there's right. a, certainly a humaneness to that that I think That's is true. important. That's true. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I just, again, larger conversation mm-hmm. about what's the point of prison. Is, are we doing it? Because we want vengeance and punishment, or right. is it meant to deter and rehabilitate, blah, blah, blah. I know, eh, I it's a whole it, but... crazy, right. very complicated conversation. At any rate, Al Capone was so badly affected by the disease at this point, not to mention his years of drug and alcohol abuse, and also, of course, the terrible health care he did receive in prison, that his brain had regressed to that of a 12-year-old. Oh. So... May cared for him personally at their home in Miami. In 1942, Al became one of the first people ever to be treated for syphilis with penicillin. They'd sort of known that it would work, and there had been experiments with mold growth treating disease for a couple decades now, but the army had just started mass producing it in a way that it could be taken specifically for syphilis. Al Capone, one of the first guys to take it. I didn't realize it was so recent in history that we were... Distributing penicillin, that's crazy. Early 1940s. So Al Capone starts taking penicillin. It wasn't going to undo the damage that had already been done, but it did seem to stop the progression of the disease, and it kept him alive for several more years. At this point, Sonny, or Albert Jr., uh, now had kids of his own. And May and Al visited them regularly. Al delighted in spending time with his grandchildren. And the FBI watched Sonny really close because they wanted to make sure that he did not go into the family business. But that was not ever really very likely because both his parents had such an aversion to involving him and all that. stuff. Right. Um, an FBI report said, quote, it is known that both Al and May have made a determined and conscientious effort throughout the life of the boy to shield him from such influences that surrounded Al and to preclude any possibility of his falling into a life of crime. It is apparent that May has exerted a great deal of effort to see that Sonny led a clean life. So Sonny was a used car salesman for a while, Mm. Um, but he quit when he found out that his boss was manipulating the odometers. Oh, wow. Just like Matilda's dad. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Wormwood. Right. I I think that's funny that Sonny like sees this one crime happening and he's Mm -hmm. like, nope, nope, I'm out. I'm not doing that. You know, I I mean, he might have been extra uh, for himself, like not just because of his parents, but kind of because of his parents. Yeah. I don't want to deal with all that. shit. I cannot. I don't want to be next to a crime because my name is Capone. Yeah. So there's no way that I won't be implicated in some way, shape or form. Like there's stereotypes about or I guess preconceived notions yeah. about who yeah. I might be. Yeah. And so I have to be extra careful. Knowing full well that he's got the FBI watching him all the time, that too, too. I'm sure. Surely. You know, uh, maybe he's trying to protect his boss. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> do you know who that. I am and who's watching me? <laughs> you should you not know? be manipulating these odometers. Bro. Right. 
The FBI is like, we don't have time for that. Know, the used care. car salesman is like knocking his price up a thousand bucks, whatever. <laughs> I did love because we, you know, we have such a, a stereotype of used car salesmen all being right. like total lemon sellers uh-huh. or whatever. That it's funny. He's like, I'm going to lead a clean life by selling used cars. <laughs> <laughs> and the FBI knew that May was getting $600 every week. Just a check showed up in the mail. And that seemed to be her only source of income. Very likely that that was hush money from the mob, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, they're going to want to throw a little money because it's Al Capone, right? Like, you were right. you were the guy around here. So right. out of respect, out of respect. a little bit of money, right? got to wet his beak. Right? Yeah. But also, I bet they they were also like, well, we got to pension off the wives. Sure. I mean, yeah. you know, if, if you go to jail and stuff, like, you can't just leave the ladies no, out gotta, to, to dry. You got to take care of the family, Yeah, you know? they, you're in the family. You got to yeah. take care of the kids. Well, the mob had restructured quite a bit since Capone was incarcerated, but he still knew a lot about their operations. And this made things a lot harder for May because as Al was getting sicker, he became prone to talking to himself or invisible guests at their home. So according to the VintageNews.com, May had to be extra careful to keep him away from the press because if he, you know, said something he shouldn't have, quote, old friends might have had to pay him a visit and silence him for good. Mm. So not only is she taking care of him, she's also like keeping him from getting himself killed. Right, by a guy who's definitely going to cry a single tear before he pulls the trigger. I, you know, yes. it's one of those right, <laughs> affecting right. scenes where they're like, uh, why you make me do this? Like, what if, I'm trying to think of, there's like a movie or something where someone's protecting someone they love who has, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a mental disability mm-hmm. of some sort. And they're like, I got, I'm, I'm working so hard to keep you from doing something. What is that movie? I'm working so hard to keep you from getting yourself killed. Right. Oh, my God. I know what I'm thinking of. What? Ozark. Oh, of course. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That was very upsetting. Well, anyway, watch Ozark. (laughs) That little storyline. If you want to, you know, feel... Desolate. It's good. It's good. It's so good. It One of the best monologues movie. on TV. I'll just oh, say that. God, the actor is amazing. Yeah, he's All so right. good. All right. Anyway. Anyway. Um, <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> so Al is continuing to get worse and worse. May's trying desperately to take care of him. And she did make sure that he got the best medical care possible. And she made sure that he was comfortable in their Miami home. But Al suffered a stroke in January of 1947 and shortly after contracted pneumonia. And on January 25th, 1947, Al Capone died of cardiac arrest. May was so devastated when they closed his eyes that she collapsed and she needed medical attention herself that night. Oh, wow. But she and Sonny would live under Al's shadow for many years to come. Uh, We'll take a quick break, hear some fine words from our sponsors, and we'll come back and talk all about that right after this. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. 
Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. So May had loved Al so much and seemed to be focused on his well-being for most of his life. Yeah. Their granddaughter once said, quote, it's as if the house died when he did. May was a very devoted grandmother. She spent most of her time with Sonny, his wife, and their children, but she was always really lonely and sad, and she reportedly never slept in their bedroom again. Wow. She told her grandchildren, quote, I had such happy times there with Papa. 
and he's not there, and I don't want to go into that room anymore. Oh, my God. That kind of breaks my heart. It does. Like, it's so weird to be like, oh, my God, Al Capone is breaking my heart here. But love is love. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I think that's what I like about this show is that, you know, as as terrible as some of the people that we've covered have been. Yeah. The emotion is still so real. And it's so human. Yeah. And it it is still romantic at times. I mean, not Carl Tanzler, but like it. A lot of them, it's just like, oh, they fell in love. They look a normal person, but they just chose a really shitty way to act to other people, I guess. Yeah. I I just shows to me that it's like, there's like, oh, I wish we could stop being so horrible. And it's such a like hippy dippy thing to say, but I Mm -hmm. truly wish we could just stop being so horrible to each other because everybody wants the same thing. Right. Like if you're a murderer, a thief, or, you know, if you're a politician or you're just a good old you know normal ass person living a good <laughs> life like you just want to be loved and love somebody right yeah that's true everybody well may became increasingly pious aside from seeing her family she basically only left home to attend mass and she was also a diligent observer of omerta the mafia code where you don't talk to nobody about nothing yeah <laughs> you keep your mouth shut you keep your mouth shut you don't say nothing we'll talk about the business according to Burgreen, quote Not once did she yield to the temptation to give an interview in defense of her husband. Must have been so hard, too, because we know she loved him so much and she really hated the attacks on his character. I mean, the the fact that she would come out and be like, I'm not divorcing him. Yeah. Got that idea. That shit ain't real. Like, Uh it tells you. Yeah, she was clearly fiercely protective of him in a lot of ways. But we also learned in the first episode about how that backfired. Yeah. The one time that she did come out because her son, the Sonny was getting right. bullied in school mm-hmm. after Al, uh, you know, had gotten arrested for something else at some point. And she was like, look, can everybody just keep our names out of the press? Al Capone, he's not so bad, blah, blah, blah. And my son's getting bullied and the press turned it into Al Capone's wife says his behavior is so bad that her son is get, is taking the blame for it, you know, right. so it, it ended up looking bad. So she probably knows, too. There's no winning. There's a, yeah, I can't say the right thing. Yeah. At any at any point. And that's still true. I mean, you go, mm-hmm. all the time you're seeing headlines manipulated to make oh. something look more absurd than it is, especially if you're on the defense. Yeah. Like if you're in yep. the defense side, there's I mean, it's like impossible to mm-hmm. sound like you're not trying to cover your ass mm-hmm. or talking shit or justifying or whatever. Yep. But one particular public event did get May and Sonny all fired up, and that is going to give us a great big crossover alert. Yay! No way. One of our previous episodes is coming in hot, because (laughs) in 1959, a TV studio made a show about Elliot Ness and his incorruptible band of Prohibition Bureau agents who helped take down Capone. These men had been called the untouchables by the press. And that is what the title of this four season TV series was called. And of course, we know the movie in 1987 with Kevin Costner, also the untouchables. But this TV show was greenlit and produced by none other. And if you know the show well, you might already know because we talked about it in their episode by our old friends, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Oh, yeah. The Untouchables was one of the big, huge shows that that made Desilu one of the biggest TV studios oh, in the country. Yeah, the sh- they they gr- Lucy greenlit the show herself. Desi produced it. Desilu Productions made a two part pilot based on Elliot Ness's memoir. And this pilot ended with Capone's conviction. So that the beginning of the show was all about 
them going after Al Capone. Mm -hmm. Those two episodes aired on CBS. CBS declined to pick up the show afterwards, and ABC ended up running it for four years. And The Untouchables is basically the predecessor to countless cop dramas that we see on TV today, right? Once again, Desi Arnaz setting the tone for TV for a century. And of course, cop dramas are the predecessor to my favorite sitcom, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> so thank you, Desi. <laughs> Diana, currently in her 14th rewatch of it's Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I already did Parks and Rec in The Good Place, I know. so it's time to go back. Yeah, I know. Well, it's not just that this show caught the attention of May and Sonny. Desi Arnaz actually knew that he was going to get a phone call about it because he had been childhood classmates with Sonny Capone. Oh. After Al moved his family down to Miami, Sonny and Desi Arnaz were in the same grade school together, and they were actually really good friends. Oh. Now, they hadn't seen each other in years, but Desi knew that this series was going to bring Sonny out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. So when the news broke that Desi Lou was adapting Ness's book into a show long before they even finished production, Sonny got in touch with Desi and said, quote, why you? Why did you have to do it? Because mm. he'd always hoped that Elliot Ness's autobiography would just kind of fizzle out. And right. he's like, people don't like to read, you know, so yeah. this is not going to be a problem. <laughs> but this show brought it to every house in America. And Desi made the argument that if he had not produced the show, someone else, quote, with less appreciation for the Capone family would make the show. So he's kind of like, I'm the best person to do this. It's going (laughs) to happen no matter what. Right. Now, the call ended abruptly when Sonny, furious with Desi, said, I'm going to sue you. And he hung up. Yeah. Now, Desi actually did handle the character of Capone with restraint after this. He kind of glossed over his brutality. Right. Although it was still a shockingly violent show for its time. That uh, that baseball scene, that baseball bat scene we Mm -hmm. talked about earlier was cut. Okay. From it was in the script, apparently, and they ended up not using it. Now, some people say that never would have made it to air anyway. anyway yeah. But Desi Arnaz had told Sonny in this phone call, like, look, I'll do my best to not make your dad look too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it he helped a little. Okay. Yeah. So it, it might have happened anyway, but it might have been yeah. Desi. All yeah. Right. So Sonny and May did sue Desi Lou and CBS for their depiction of Al Capone. They said it infringed on their privacy and it brought them humiliation and shame. And Sonny said he even had to move cities to protect his kids who were getting bullied in school, kind of mm. like Sonny himself had experienced. Right. But the Chicago Circuit Court rejected the suit. And even after going to the Supreme Court, it was rejected as well because they decided that privacy rights don't extend to the next of kin. Wow. Yeah. So you can say whatever you want about Al Capone. Yeah. So Mm. any TV show could come out and talk about your mama and say whatever they want and you can't do nothing about it. That seems kind of weird because of where it bleeds into your life. Yeah. Is kind of affecting your privacy. They're like if they and the show didn't depict May or Sonny. So they're like, so, hey, we didn't say anything about you. I guess that makes sense. You know? Yeah, I don't know. It's rocky. For for the legal scholars, Mm -hmm. not for me. And it it wasn't just the Capones who were upset about this show either. Other Italian-Americans, including old blue eyes Frank Sinatra, Mm -hmm. called out the show for promoting negative stereotypes. He's like, you can't say shit about Italians. Beautiful. We're just as good as everybody else. (laughs) I don't want to see this TV show because 
Otherwise, I'll come to your house with the bat. Oh, sh- uh, well, Frank Sinatra also very involved in the mob. So <laughs> I was just about to say, I mean, it's not like his mafia friends were not like, hey, Frank. Uh, yeah, you got to say something. You got to get out there. You're the face of the mob, basically. Well, Italian-American groups did organize protests and boycotts for all being portrayed as criminals and mobsters. And I mean, this was a big problem yeah. on the show. Uh, yeah. Every time there was like some low level henchman, it was always like Johnny Tucci or Sure. You know, Barbarino Barbarelli, you know, whatever. <laughs> yes, Barbarino Barbarelli. <laughs> uh, my hey, favorite I'm, character. Hey, I'm, I'm pizza lasagna and I'm here to break your knees. <laughs> you know, they would do stuff like that. And I'm mocking them for doing it, not saying that that's what I would say. No, and it makes sense because we talked about in the first episode with May and Al getting together how yeah. much Irish people, you know, they were kind of, it's that racism thing. Yeah. It's like how much closer you are to whiteness yeah. is you're closer to power. So right. they'd be like, I'm trying to say Italian people ain't white, you right. know? And yeah. so there was like a lot of that going on Yeah, at this time. And as a person with a lot of Italian background in my own family, right. Right. who's very white, mm-hmm. myself, white. I am a very white you're person. Very white. <laughs> uh, that's so insane to me. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. Right. And also Irish. You have a bit oh of yeah, my mom's got a ton of Irish blood too. Yeah. So yeah, I'm like a, vibes yeah going on. man. Maybe I wouldn't do so well in the 1930s. <laughs> I'm not sure that any of us do so well in the think, 1930s. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> None of us were made for the 1930s, <laughs> and that's why we're here today. Yeah, but after four days of picketing by these Italian American groups, the main sponsor of the show, L and M Cigarettes, said, "All right, we're going to drop our sponsorship. We hear you. Wow. You know." We're going to change our Facebook Facebook profile picture to an Italian flag. <laughs> you know, we're all going to be seen eating stromboli mm-hmm. out in public. You know, we we're doing our part. Sponsorship. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But it, this did work because after this, Desi Arnaz and ABC announced a three point manifesto for the show moving forward and for, I think, all ABC shows. The first was that there would be no more fictional hoodlums with Italian names in future productions. No more pizza lasagna. No more pizza lasagna breaking kneecaps, right? <laughs> if it wasn't a real historical person, they weren't going to make one up. Okay. Number two was that more attention would be paid to the character of Rico Rossi, who was Elliot Ness's right-hand man. So he was one of the law enforcers, and they were like, let's make him more of a hero. Because I'm assuming he's Italian. <clears throat> he's Italian, okay. yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And number three, an emphasis would be given to the, quote, formidable influence of Italian-American officials in reducing crime and focus on the, quote, great contributions made to American culture by Americans of Italian descent. So it was oh, very cool. much like that sort of, I don't know, I feel like we've seen it in recent years mm-hmm. uh, in media with black culture, especially where they're like, right. OK, all right, you, we have been super racist. We're uh-huh. going to try and do better and focus something. on a few things and you know, some progress. I'm a little jealous that it only took four days of picketing. I mean, I feel like you know, <laughs> that wouldn't work. I've, well, back then, the, the corporations had not yet learned how to dodge that kind of stuff. So they had to be not. a little more responsive to protests. Mm hmm. Because, you know, they hadn't completely rewritten the laws in their favor yet. Right. But that this is probably what made them start working on it. Oh, surely. They were like, (laughs) "Ah, I guess we need some pencil necks in here. Yeah. Now, overall, as other women of her era were stepping up and being more vocal, May was looking for anonymity. Mm. In the fight against prohibition, she aggressively stayed out of it. 
Yeah. Probably because her husband had profited from the law so much. <laughs> right. She's Hard like, for her to I say. I mean, I don't really want you to stop <laughs> prohibition because right. it's been really a boon for me. Right. <laughs> or even if she did, she might get some side eyes like, That's um, true, but... oh, yeah, you always had a real problem with illegal booze, didn't you? Uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> Although that, I feel like that would make it more credible. Like, yeah. even though I have profited off the prohibition law, I think we should all get rid of it. <laughs> I have all the money I need. So I let's know. stop. That. <laughs> now that I'm done making money. <laughs> but it was reported that she did want the law repealed because many mothers of the time did not want their sons growing up, quote, in the hip flask speakeasy atmosphere that polluted their own youth. Sure. That makes sense. So, yeah, she reportedly was like, I'm good with it going away. But she just never took a public stance on Mm -hmm. the matter. And while other mob wives had written books about their wild lives, you know, getting on that memoir train, May never wrote or published anything. Mm. She allegedly even burned all of her diaries and the love letters Al sent her from prison so that no one could read them after her death. Wow. That's that takes a that takes something I don't have because I'm sentimental, you know. I know. I kind of agree. I I got these love letters. uh, These will outlast me. Seriously. What well, if I need to read them when I'm lonely and 86 years old? You that's know? exactly what I was about to say. Yeah. It seems like something you would more put in your will, like, Sunny, make sure you burn all my shit after I'm yeah. dead. But she's like, I'm going to do it so that I see that it was done. Yeah. Like, that's kind of a sacrifice. Yeah. Well, also, you look at someone who grew up in the early 20th century America. She's probably not very sentimental. She's that's probably true. used that's to things true. like being like, oh, this journal my great great grandfather wrote, mm-hmm. but I can't start a fire for the soup tonight. So right. here it's kindling anyway. now. You know <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> I got there. I was thinking about that because there so many of our stories are about letters getting lost or, or aren't around anymore. They got burned or destroyed yeah. or whatever. And I'm like, well, how could you? You know, in my mind, I'm like, how could you destroy a Walt Whitman letter to uh-huh. Anne or whatever? <laughs> but at the time, of course, you're cleaning out you know your grandma's apartment yeah. or whatever and it's stacked full of letters because there's no phone calls yeah. so you're just like obviously i'm gonna burn this half right. of these things are just like hey bitch where's my shit like, <laughs> it doesn't matter for real so yeah anyway so she burned all that shit and then she eventually sold the mansion she moved to a retirement home in hollywood florida where she lived until 1986 when she passed at 89 years old well Now, Sonny ended up changing his name to Albert Francis Brown because, according to his lawyer, quote, he was just sick and tired of fighting the name. Can't blame him. Yeah, it's true. I mean, he he mostly was fine. He did get arrested once for like really petty shoplifting, like a pack of cigarettes or something. And they arrested him and he was like, everybody steals a little something now and then. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to feel the rush. Yeah, right. But he did live a quiet, law abiding life. He married three times, and when he died in July of 2004, his wife America told a reporter, quote, Al Capone has been dead a long, long time. His son had nothing to do with him. Let him rest in peace for crying out loud. He suffered enough in his life for being who he was. Hmm. So we can imagine that things were kind of tough for for Albert Francis Brown. You know, how do you escape the shadow of Al Capone, right? right? I mean, this guy was... First of all, like Lawrence Bergreen, who wrote the book that we've been quoting for the most part, said Al Capone was, quote, the best known, least understood gangster of all. And that's got for someone who's close to him. That's got to be so hard because we probably understand this better today. The image of you in the press is nothing like what you're like to the people who know and love you. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's not to say Al Capone was not a monster. He absolutely 
murdered a bunch of people, committed a bunch of crimes, drugs. You know, he was out there pushing drugs on the street, Mm -hmm. like a lot of bad stuff and a lot of bad things to happen to a lot of, you know, otherwise probably good people because of him. Right. Um, But also the picture they paint, the idea that everyone who ever would come up and try to talk to this kid about his dad Mm -hmm. is probably also totally inaccurate or fictitious or, you know, blown out of proportion. Well, and Sonny doesn't know that Al. He knows right. a different Al. Right. Like, that's that's the other thing that I find fascinating about our show sometimes is that when you're focusing on these intimate lives yeah. and the internal feelings and emotions of somebody, that's that multitude. Bringing yeah. up Walt Whitman again. Right. That's those multitudes where you're like, there's a soft person in here. Right. This is a guy who loved his kid and he probably yep. played catch with him and he yeah. was super nice to his wife. And you know what I mean? At home. Right. He's a great guy, right? And then outside of the home, he's something else. Yeah. But Sonny only knew one side of him. He probably didn't want to hear about the other sides yeah. at all. Yeah. So he could maintain his own memories and the person he respected and loved. I mean, that's really difficult, I think, for anyone with a very infamous or famous relative. You know what I mean? It's yeah. And it's so it's tough. You go. We go back to part one. We look at how did. Al get into this because sometimes I'm like Al you could have been a very successful businessman mm-hmm. you were he was really good at accounting he had like a legit job at a construction firm right you know he was raising his family everything was fine and then his dad died he got depressed and Johnny Torrio showed up and said how'd you like to be one of the richest people in the world mm. and money corrupts yeah you know and also like you know his situation while fine was probably not great and he was depressed because his dad died Mm -hmm. and he was also taking care of his mother because his older brothers weren't doing very well financially so all these factors come together and al capone's like okay i'll get into organized crime then undiagnosed syphilis case Mm. makes him crazy right and he turns into this violent monster he was a pretty violent guy to begin with right not saying he wasn't but they a lot of these scholars are saying Syphilis was a big part of why Al Capone was so brutal. Yeah. And so it's just this perfect storm that creates this horrible person who probably otherwise would have been a perfectly good person. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of sad. Yeah, true. You know, you just can't divorce people from their circumstances. Right. Because he came up in a violent world. Right. So that's another thing that makes it hard sometimes. Oh, my God. Again, with the prison conversation. Yeah. Where you're like, obviously, you're hurting people. You're doing crazy things. You need to be removed from society. Right, like right. you have proven that you're not a reliable roommate right. for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. But there's also so much to be said about if you grow up in a violent place where that's your only chance of survival, you're stupid to not be a brutal person. Right. Like it's not smart. Yeah. It's not a survival instinct. Yeah. We as humans are trying to survive. So anyway, it's just one of those things that makes it hard to to yeah because humans are very complicated we don't have one thing we're not all malice we're not all good you know yeah and you look at uh, another very common denominator in most crime activity in this country he grew up in a very poor neighborhood Mm -hmm. but a underserved neighborhood at least you know or is full of italian americans who are very looked down on they probably had a hard time getting out of that neighborhood didn't have a lot of opportunities because of racism. Mm-hmm. And what happens? Then a group of people go to all the teenagers and say, hey, why don't you come work for me? You can make some money. Yeah. Have some fun. And you go spend it down at the five and dime. Mm-hmm. But you can give your mom some of it and she can make a good dinner tonight. Like, what a tempting opportunity that grown ass criminals are making to young men. 
right. you know, who are not only impressionable, but kind of desperate mm-hmm. for A, something to do and B, something to make their lives better. Yeah. So like you said, of course, he grew up ready to be a criminal. That was normal mm-hmm. to him. Um, so not to say that plenty of kids in that neighborhood didn't grow up to be criminals and there, there's sure. not a choice at a certain point that you make. Right. Uh, that you're responsible for because there is. But I don't know. We just we have such a hard time looking at the circumstances that generate crime in here. We're so focused on what we do after yeah. crime um, that uh, that we we're not we're really not good at pre- preventing it. We really think that, oh, if we scare people with mm-hmm. the punishments enough, they just won't do it. Like eh, People aren't doing it because they think they can get away with it or they just want to because it's fun. They're doing right. it because they kind of have to or they see it as their only opportunity yeah exactly yeah. and like what well, even experts like recently not that recently even came out and said yeah crime does pay <laughs> like, <laughs> right. sorry but I like know. it fucking does and a lot of people don't get caught you know or yeah. especially if you're freaking al capone and yeah. you got all the cops on in and politicians in yeah. your pocket how can you ever feel fear of yeah. that retribution you know like right. there's nothing Anyway, we are bad at prevention because it's not sexy, but um, <laughs> but it it is annoying yeah. the conversation because you're like, I'd rather know that you tried really hard to keep someone from becoming a criminal, yeah, and then say, well, they chose it anyway, and now Would, we can react to that, yeah. that choice. But yeah. if I know, wow, you came from a place where like literally no one gave a shit about you yeah. until you started doing bad things. It's like, well, what did you expect? Yeah. Anyway, uh, but I do feel sorry for Sonny that he was, you know, having he was trying so hard not to be his father and he yeah. was still it's associated, so associated yeah. that he had to change his name. Like yeah. that that kind of sucks. Yeah. There are a lot of uh, Capone descendants out there somewhere, mm-hmm. but pr- again, probably last name Brown. <gasps> Uh-oh. Wait a minute. Could it be? Could it be? You're the descendant of um the Earl of Rochester and Al Capone. <laughs> the Earl of Dudley. Thank you very Dudley, much. Dudley, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it could be. Maybe that's it. I'm my on one side. <laughs> we got Dudley, maybe sleeping with the Queen, the Virgin Queen. Oh man. So you're <laughs> on the other side, we got Capone's <laughs> Speculation Station. The blood in your veins is the heir to the throne of England and also the heir to the Chicago crime outfit. All right. Either one of y'all that want to get in touch with my just desserts. <laughs> you would be either very good or very bad at both of those jobs. Because mm. part of me thinks you would bring an organizational mindset, an administrative mindset that mm-hmm. they've probably been lacking for a long time and a humility <laughs> that they could probably stand to have. To the crime to or both. to the Earl? <laughs> to both. To the royal family and to the Chicago crime outfit. I see. And part of me thinks... You would just hate it so much. Oh. You'd be too nice. You'd be too sweet. I would I would not like both. it. Yeah. I would not like it. No. It would have to be a sitcom situation where I come in and I'm really sweet and it changes everyone's entire personalities, which is not realistic. So Look, <laughs> like hey, it's just not. HBO, Apple TV. If you want hey. the next Ted Lasso on your hands right here, it's where <laughs> a podcaster from America ends up <laughs> Queen of England or and and <laughs> and Head of the Chicago crime outfit. <laughs> Look, I'll watch it. I'm, I'm gonna like, watch every episode. I'll all tell I you right want now. is to go to that blue grotto. Pay <laughs> <laughs> my euros. Look, let's do it. I'm ready. I'm ready. Call us up. All right. Y'all all know right, how to get yes. in touch with us, right? Or whatever you're called now. Get on. Get on the horn. It's time. We'll write this one on spec.
You can reach out to us and tell us that you're ready to sign us for a TV show <laughs> by writing to ridicromance at gmail.com. That's right. Or reach out on Instagram. I'm at Dynamite Boom. And I'm at, oh, great. It's Eli. And the show is at Romance. Thanks, y'all, so much for sticking with us during this busy time of the year. Uh, we should be all back to it now. And we're so excited to be uh, back in your ears again. And we will see you soon for another great episode yep. of A Ridiculous Moment. We'll see you then. Love Bye. you. Bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.